Hey folks, welcome to Narratives. Narratives is a podcast exploring the ways in which the world is better than in the past, the ways it is worse, and the paths towards a better, more definite vision of the future. I'm your host, Will Jarvis, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. You can find show notes, transcripts, and videos at narrativespodcast.com. Well, Buck, how are you doing today? I'm doing all right. How are you? Doing great. Thank you so much for hopping on. I, I really appreciate it. Could you go ahead and give us a brief bio and, and tell us some of the big ideas you're interested in? Yeah. So I guess my brief bio is um, I currently work as the CTO at Redwood Research, which is a nonprofit research institute uh, research doing some applied alignment research. Um, I'm also a fund manager on the Effective Altruism Infrastructure Fund, where I uh, make grants for various things related to effective altruism movement building and related types of movement building. Uh, I have been involved in AI alignment technical research for the last three or four years. Uh, before that, I was a software engineer, and before that, I studied computer science. Awesome, awesome. And when you mention alignment research, you're talking about AI alignment, correct? Yeah, AI alignment research. Super, super. So not all our listeners are familiar with it. So could, could you talk a little bit about you know AI safety, why you think it's important, and and how you got there? Yeah. So I guess the basic uh, the basic pitch for AI safety uh, notes, uh, starts by noting that a lot of the stuff which happens in the world is determined by cognitive labor. Uh, you know, uh, cars have changed the world a lot. Buildings have changed the world a lot. Uh, and many different types of many different types of uh, work and many different resources are required to put these things together. But one of the key limitations is how good the ideas we have are for for how to build these cars, like how, how to design the machines that build these cars and that make it cheaper to mine and so on. Uh, it seems reasonably likely to me that over the next century, the primary it's going to become the case that the primary way that we get cognitive labor done is instead of paying humans to think about it with the brains which are operating inside their heads at, you know, with 20 watts of power or whatever, uh, it becomes cheaper to get machines to do the thinking for you uh, in the same way that it's now cheaper to get machines to lift the, the, the blocks for you if you're assembling a large building. Um, and just as machines that made moving blocks around cheaper affected the size of the buildings which get built uh, and made the whole economy a lot larger, I suspect that drastically reducing the price of doing cognitive work uh, by making it so that machines can do it, uh, and also making it so that we can do types of cognitive work that are currently impossible, uh, seems like it might change the world a lot. Um, so that's like the, the case for like, AI is a big deal. Um, I'd have to make a separate case for maybe this happens uh, within the next century. Um, but that, 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 that's like part one of that case. Um, and then part two is thinking that we should work on AI alignment. So by AI alignment, I mean something like, uh, I wanna make it so that as AI gets developed, it's as easy to use it for uh, many tasks that I care about as it is to use it for some other tasks. Um, so maybe the easiest way to explain this, um, sometimes, sometimes people talk about the possibility that uh, social media makes it easier to spread misinformation than to fight it. Um, 
And this is an example of a case where you have this technology and the, the, the technology for, uh, you know, the technology itself isn't particularly like, uh, it, it's not like I'm just like building bioweapons or something where obviously the only application of the technology is destruction. Um, but in some cases, uh, technology makes it easier to destroy value or like technologies le uh, lend themselves more easily to destroying value than they uh, lend themselves to producing value. Uh, and for various reasons, I'm worried that by default, AI is going to be one of these technologies that might be easier to deploy in ways that destroy certain types of value than uh, how easy it is to deploy it in ways that preserve that type of value. Um, that's perhaps a really abstract way of saying this. Um, a concrete example is, I'm worried that it's gonna be easier to make AI systems that um, you, know, you ask them a question and they give you back an answer that sounds really smart than building an AI system that you ask it a question and it gives you back an answer that is in fact a really good idea. Um, you know, you ask it for some advice uh, and, and you, want, you want good advice out. Uh, but the problem is the way you make AI systems do stuff is you train them. Um, and I have an easy way of training a system to give advice that sounds smart to humans, which is I get the AI to propose two different pieces of advice it might give to a human. And then I pay some humans 15 bucks an hour to, to read you know, questions and like two proposed pieces of advice and click the advice that seems smarter. Um, and pretty soon this AI is gonna give you advice that sounds really, really smart. Um, but suppose I wanted to build a system that gives you advice that is actually good advice. Um, it's much harder because among other things, uh, I mean, the easiest case is when someone gives you advice and you wanna figure out if it was actually good advice or not, sometimes you have to wait to see what the effects of the advice are. Um, and it's fundamentally harder to train a system if you need to like wait 10 years between uh, starting the training process and finishing the training process. Uh, and also sometimes it's hard to tell whether advice was good advice, even with the benefit of all hindsight. Um, and so it's just, like, it's just like systematically harder to construct a training process, which like gets this AI to give you actually good advice. Um, and a third kind of, of concern you might have uh, is if the advice uh, is deceptive. If the advice gives the AI access to your bank account and lets it um, lets it steal your money and start hosting itself on the internet by like you know paying for its own its own servers to run on, uh, you will never have a chance to uh, penalize it. Uh, it just like lives on the internet now. Um, and so for a couple of these reasons, it feels like it might be easier to build these systems that are uh, that you give advice that sounds really good but you can't really trust than it is to build these systems that give advice that. Uh, is actually good. Um, and this is an example of a kind of fundamental seeming hard problem. I'm worried that if you just like have a bunch of stuff like that going on, it's pretty dangerous and bad. That, you know, that is that's such a great point. And I think about this in context of, of my dog, right? You know, he had like a skin condition recently, had to get a bath. He hates the bath. There's no way for me to inform him that the bath is a good idea. You know, it's like just above his cognitive pay grade. And you, and there could be things like that where, you know, AI tells us to do something. It's a great idea. Yeah. We have no way of understanding how that yeah. <laughs> it's a good idea. That's exactly, super, exactly. That, that's super interesting. Um, so uh, I think it's, it's a really important thing to work on. As you mentioned, it could be, there's a lot of asymmetries that it can exist. Um, it could be used as a weapon. Um, it could be, and we tend to develop things to use them as weapons. So I think of like, you know, nuclear power that was developed originally, you know, we, Manhattan Project wanted a weapon. Um, I, I, it seems like most of the, the mainstream debate around AI is around, um, you know, it's going to take our jobs or automation is taking our jobs. 
But it does seem to me like uh, the more important thing to worry about is is the uh, what if this you know what if it's evil or it does things that are, are bad to humans. Uh, how do you think about that kind of issue? Yeah. So I mean, I think that as with so many things, uh, there is like answers to this question at you know increasing levels of sophistication where you know you say something and then the next and then the next paragraph says well actually. Uh, and you point out the consideration the previous one misses. So we're going to go from the simplest explanation, uh, the simplest answer first. Um, I think my moral perspective, or whatever, uh, is that I'm a I'm a long termist. Um, I care a lot about the welfare of humanity and other sentient life uh, in the long run future. And so I'm inclined to think that we should mostly be focusing our efforts on making it so that stuff is good a million years from now. Um, and it by default would be really, really hard to influence the world. Uh, like most times in history, it would be really, really hard to influence the world a million years from now. You know, if you were, it was 500 years ago, I think that it would have been extremely difficult to influence the world of today, let alone the world of 99,995, uh, or sorry, no, that's not the number, uh, years in the future from then. Um, but I think it's kind of plausible that we are at a pretty unusual period of history where it is in fact possible to influence the long run trajectory of humanity, basically because I think that um, the probability of human extinction this century is a bunch higher uh, than it is most centuries, uh, than it has been in the past and then it will be in the future. And so for this reason, kind of my top priority is making it so that when humanity builds these really smart systems that make things uh, that are able to do lots of stuff. Uh, I want this to go well for humanity. And so my kind of simple first answer to the question of how I think we should prioritize between worrying about making that transition go well and worrying about um, unemployment in the short term is I'm just like, well, I don't know. It seems like almost all of the value is in the future. And so I don't think that I should be prioritizing very much worrying about technological unemployment in the short term because the number of people affected is just much smaller. And I believe in prioritizing things based on the number of people affected. Um, and then I, I think that there are actually some more complicated, I think there's like a, a complicated second order take, which is something like the following. Um, at some point in the future, uh, we're going to build the first systems that are smarter than humans are. And this is likely to go better if the world is less of a mess uh, when this goes down. So for example, I feel a bunch more optimistic about the deployment of early artificial general intelligence systems, uh, you know, AGI. I feel a lot more optimistic about how well that goes down in worlds where uh, the world is in an unprecedented period of international cooperation and peace rather than in the middle of World War IV or like whatever, you know. Uh, that seems like it would be much better. And so I think that... Uh, it is plausible that before the world becomes radically different as a result of really powerful AI, uh, the world just becomes pretty different. And one example of the way it could become pretty different is uh, you know, technological unemployment. And so I do actually think that uh, if there was a strong story for technological unemployment causing things to be really bad uh, and a real mess, uh, then I would think we should worry about that because of the fact that it puts humanity in a worse position. Um, for the sake of the long-term future. Gotcha. So something kind of like if our starting blocks are bad, when, when AI yeah. takes off, things could be could be quite yeah. rocky. 
yeah, that, that could be very bad. Yeah, that's right. We've got like two different problems. One is like, you know, the 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 core problem is like when we actually build these crazy powerful systems, uh, we really want that to go well. Uh, but also these less powerful systems we have on the way there might mess things up in various ways, and that would be unfortunate. Gotcha, gotcha. That that makes a that makes a ton of sense. I when you know, how do you think about factoring the value of future people versus you know the people that are here now? Do you see what I'm saying? Um, and, and there there are going to be a you know, God willing, there will be quite a few more people in the future. So you know, even even if you factored it a lot, it would still they they still matter a lot. It seems like. Yeah, that seems right to me. Um, I think. I feel a little confused by exactly how much to weigh the interests of future people. Um, almost all of the people are in the future. Uh, you know, it seems like we could probably colonize space if we tried. Um, there are many galaxies, there are many stars, uh, you know, 100 billion stars in the Milky Way, almost 100 billion reachable galaxies if we leave now. Uh, Many each of these stars can support a very large number of humans or other uh, sentient life, not sentient beings. Uh, and so it's kind of, I mean, like the argument for not caring about that is not going to be like a numerical argument, like, well, I only care about these these beings like one millionth as much as I care about current beings. The argument has to be something like, I don't care about any of that for some reason. Um, and so I just like, I'm just like, I don't know, man. It seems like that's where the money is or, you know, or like that's where the value is. Like that's right. what we should be focusing on with most of our effort. Um, I, you know, I, I care, I personally care deeply about the welfare of the people around me, whereby around me, I mean, who exist now on earth. Uh, but I think that from an altruistic perspective, like with the proportion of my efforts that I try to use to make the world better in an impartial way for everyone, basically all of that effort is focused on the long-term future. Gotcha. That makes a ton of sense. Um, and, and do you think currently there are there are areas spe- specifically on in existential risks that are that are being kind of overlooked or are um, particularly underfunded at this at this point, or like you know, in terms of human attention, shall we say? Um, I don't know. I I'm probably I'm I'm not going to have good answers to here. I think. Um, I think that it's kind of like underfunded with respect to what I think that the existential risk community is pretty good at allocating effort. Um, I, I, it's pretty rare, especially nowadays for me to hear about something that seems absolutely crucial where like no one is working on it. Um, That's good. I wish that we had many more people. Uh, I, I, I wish, yeah, I wish we had many more people. I wish we had many more competent organizations trying to do stuff. Um, I don't think that there's that much room for more funding, um, but yeah. So, so I would say I don't have any like really contrarian takes. Like, if I managed ten billion dollars, I don't yeah. think I would have substantially different ideas of how this should be spent compared to the how money is currently being spent on existential risk. That's great. That's great. Well, it, it does seem like uh, there's a lot of really smart people working on it, which gives me hope on on the problem. It's that it's not, you know, uh, you know, less smart people looking working on the puppy pounds. So, you know, I don't know. Maybe more twenty dollar bills on the sidewalk there. I don't know. Um, cool. Uh, so, in general, how good do you think human humanity is at coordination? In kind of absolute terms. 
<laughs> I mean, it's really hard to say. Uh, and I think that a lot of, you know, there's been a lot of disagreement within EA about how good humanity is at coordination. Um, and I've, you know, written about it a little bit, which is probably why you're asking this question. Uh, and I think that most of the time, the difficulty comes down to operationalizing what it means to be good or bad at coordination. Um, I think we could point to examples of things where humanity did or did not do particular things. Like we can all agree that the Manhattan Project happened. We can all agree that uh, the FDA did not approve uh, various COVID vaccines months earlier than they did. Uh, I mean, definitionally. Uh, and then the question is just like what you take away from this. Um, I feel like the main questions about coordination that I'm interested in, one, I'm interested in, I guess like I'm interested in the probability that when faced with problems that really require hardcore uh, coordination between various important groups in the future, I'm interested in whether it gets messed up either by the groups in question being too competitive and not cooperative with each other enough, or whether it gets messed up just by everyone involved making bad mistakes that are bad by their own lights. Um, and it feels like to operationalize the question of how uh, competent people are at, at coordination, what we'd really have to do is describe in concrete detail the scenarios in the future which might come up, at which point it feels like it's really important that people be cooperative. Um, and then if we had this really specific list of coordination problems that might come up in the future, we could ask uh, we could try to think of historical analogs to these coordination problems, and we could try to form these analogies. We could be like, well, I don't know, this seems kind of like the problem of making sure that uh, the US nuclear weapons stockpile uh, didn't have all of the key codes set to zero, 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 zero <laughs> for several decades, uh, right. you know, the, the security codes required to launch the nukes. Yeah. Um, in which case, uh, I feel pessimistic about that type of problem given the US's empirical performance on the analogy. Um, or you could argue that the main analogy is this feels as hard as humans not launching nukes at each other during the Cold War, which we succeeded at. Um, yeah. And so I think that when we try to talk about how good humanity is at coordination, the main problem here is that we really need to operationalize exactly what types of things we're asking about. And this is really hard because it involves futurism um, and you know, making concrete, giving concrete stories for how things might be in the future. And so I am not super impressed with any answers proposed by anyone to this kind of question historically, including myself, of course. It's just really difficult. It's a really difficult thing to get to. Um, that's cool. So making, you know, hard predictions, uh, about the future. I, I want to talk about AI a little bit, you know, what do you think AGI looks like when it takes off? Is it something like Robin Hanson's age of N where we just get good medical imaging technology we can uh, image people's brains and we can run them faster. We can emulate yeah. them. Or is it, is it something else? So I currently think it's much more likely that we, uh, I think it's quite likely that we get um, de novo AGI, by which I mean um, intelligent systems that we trained from scratch rather than by um, trying to copy particular humans. Gotcha. Uh, it seems to me like the rate of progress on, um, whole brain emulation has not been that high over the last decade. Uh, there are several different bottlenecks there, uh, at least two of which seem quite hard. Um, and so I guess my, my, I'm, I don't know if you made me give you a number right now, I'm like 80%. We get to, to know AI before whole brain emulation. Gotcha. 
that makes sense. And my, my, uh, my friends in physics say there are some, there's some hard challenges there that are just difficult to overcome. And just, there's some recent, there's a recent news about the, the worm emulation project yeah. having gotten kind of nowhere, in, you know, the last kind of 10 yeah. years, which is, uh, there's just like a lot of things like, then you got to make a like crazy microscope and this like crazy microscope has to be able to like image things at tiny resolutions. And also when you aim this tiny microscope at a neuron, the neuron catches fire immediately. And so you got to like image it real fast before it's gone from exploding or, or and, and so on and so on. Right. Just, it seems like a, a fundamentally quite difficult problem. though yeah. not necessarily entirely impossible, you know, uh, AGI might also be a hard problem. Super cool. Um, I want to take kind of a left turn here. And although it is related, um, what advice do you have for building a, a really high impact career? You've been successful at this um, and and advice is hard to give. So I don't know. It, it's a difficult question, but are there any general takeaways you've had that you think would be useful for people? Yeah. Um, I don't know the extent to which I expect to be successful. Um, I'm, I'm trying this, this, this Redwood research stuff. Uh, we might succeed and we might fail. Um, just as a caveat, I want to give, as you say, advice is hard. Um, some things which, some choices that I made that I think turned out quite well for me, which of course is different from them being a choice that someone else would want to make. Um, I'm very glad to have spent a lot of time when I was young messing around programming, uh, I think that I, in unstructured ways, where I just tried to think about what was cool and do things that I thought were cool. Um, this has turned out pretty useful because it means that I'm now quite comfortable uh, making up solutions to computer science problems. Uh, when I was, I guess, 21 and 22, I uh, submitted talks to this industry scholar conference where, you know, it was the kind of thing where you like submit the abstract before actually doing the project. And then I got in. And so I was like, I guess I have to actually do this project <laughs> now. And I, I, I did this, whatever, I spent 200 hours each year on or something on this like dumb, dumb programming project. Uh, but it was fun. It was a, it was legitimate research. I learned how to do research on my own. I learned how to stare at whiteboards for hours on end and like slowly piece together designs. Um, and that made me happy. Uh, and I think has been like a useful set of skills for later. Um, I'm glad to have spent a bunch of time trying to think through EA concepts, you know, effective altruism con concepts. Um, I'm glad to have spent a lot of time arguing with people about uh, the form of the AI alignment problem, um, a bunch of things about ethics and how we should feel about the long-term future. I think that time has been well spent. Um, I'm really glad to have been down for doing things. I feel like some people, uh, I feel like there have been a bunch of points in my career where people asked me to do a particular job. Uh, like for instance, a bunch of uh, recruiting and outreach stuff at Miri. And I, you know, this wasn't particularly the job that I had signed up for, uh, but I, in hindsight, I'm really glad that I did it. I, I think that I've learned a lot from like taking these opportunities that weren't like super obvious fits, um, but were just like a way I could produce value right then. Um, similarly, when I was uh, a software engineer, I was working at uh, Triple Byte, um, which is a startup, and I found it really useful to just try and produce value whatever way I could. I, you know, I 
developed aspects of the programming interview that were giving people and I made web interfaces for sending emails more efficiently. And I just did a lot of random stuff. Uh, and I think that I got more value out of that experience uh, because I was doing kind of random stuff that I hope would produce value compared to how much I would have gotten if I had said, you know, no, I'm just a backend engineer or full stack engineer. I just really want to be doing backend or full stack engineering all the time. I don't know. Those are some thoughts. That's great. You know, do you know Ben Kuhn from Wave? Yeah. Yeah. I so he, he said something similar. He said, um, you know, uh, he learns, he's learned quite a lot because oftentimes the most valuable thing for him to be doing at Wave will be like, okay, I've got to fix this obscure, you know, accounting problem, or, you know, I'm an engineer, you know, software engineer, and I think I'm really good at what I do, but, you know, I'm just building a CRUD app, but this is super valuable for, you know, people. Um, so I think that's great advice, you know, lean into what, what you think can be valuable at any given time. Yeah. I don't know if it's great advice for everyone. I <laughs> for some people. Yeah. That's great. That's great. Yeah. Um, you wrote, wrote something on your blog, which I found really interesting. I, and I'd like to just, you know, have you expand on a little bit. Uh, you mentioned that uh, you're less sure nowadays that um, us getting wealthier is like a slam dunk, a positive thing uh, as a society. What, what do you think about that? Um, I think that it's confusing. Uh, I think that there is a lot of suffering caused to farmed animals that did not used to get caused to farm animals. Uh, since the 60s, um, animal agriculture has gotten much more intensive. The price of animal products has fallen substantially. Uh, and the average experience of being an animal in one of these farms um, has gone way, way down. Um, and I think this is one of the greatest moral tragedies of our time. Um, and I think that this should give us some pause. Um, I think that there is a certain, if you, if you just ask the question, like let's, let's define human civilization to include uh, all the stuff directly influenced by humans in a certain sense, uh, then it feels like, uh, I mean, it kind of depends how much moral weight you assign to chickens compared to how much you assign to humans. Uh, but I think there's a, a very plausible way to do the calculation under which the main thing which has happened over the last 70 years is that many more animals are tortured in farms. Um, and that is not good. And feels like it gives me pause about whether I want to be like, yes, technology has obviously made things better. That's right. That's right. Is that, that's a great point is it's not always, it's not automatically good. I think that's a really important point. And also, you know, you know, what has happened to farm animals over the last, you know, 40 years is, is not, it's not good. You know, there's a lot of suffering that goes on uh, because we, you know, it's hyper competitive. We're trying to feed everybody. Everybody wants to eat more protein and we're animal protein and kind of negative consequences from that. Yep. Makes sense. So compared to, so uh, I think that the actual overall effect of humans getting wealthier uh, as evaluated on uh, in terms of short-term welfare is actually kind of uh, ambiguous because of the fact that we didn't include wild animal suffering. Um, in the previous in the previous calculation. So another major change which has happened over the last 70 years is that uh, there are many fewer wild animals um, of, of certain types. Uh, and there are more of some other types, I think, uh, though I don't know the numbers on this very well. And so like whether the average experience or you know, whether the total uh, welfare of all the individuals on earth weighted by moral importance has gone up or down is gonna turn out to like rest on 
something about what it's like to be a tiny fish or something. You know, there's just really a lot of tiny fish out there. And if it's if the tiny fish are having a more bad time than they used to have, then maybe that's just like by far the most important fact about the last 70 years from a short-termist perspective. I find this plausible. Um, and so then it's like, well, I don't know. What, what, should, what moral should we take from this for the future? Uh, I think it's unclear. There's definitely, like one, one way you could think about this is like, well, humanity sure did a lot of stuff. And even though it's not, you know, in 1950, we knew that there were tiny fish in the ocean uh, and humanity was not very careful about this. Humanity didn't say like, well, you know, uh, before we continue doing our economic growth, we better really think about tiny fish and like really think about whether we're making the world worse for the tiny fish as we do our economic activities. They didn't care about that at all. Uh, and you might extrapolate this forward to the future and you might say, well, uh, in as much as humanity gains more power and influences more, uh, more total like uh, computation that's going on, it, like influences, it expands to all these other stars, all these other, other planets, maybe we should be afraid because last time humanity wildly expanded its range of influence, this went badly, uh, if it in fact did. And if yeah. it didn't go badly, then it didn't go badly by coincidence. Uh, there, there was no one at this wheel. We just like pressed the gas uh, and maybe it was okay. Like maybe no children were hit. Uh, but like that doesn't necessarily entirely um, entirely cons uh, comfort me. So that's the pessimistic story. Uh, I think that the optimistic story has two parts. One of the parts is the kind of object level part. It's like um, the reason that this went badly was at least in the at least in the animal agriculture case. I think the wild animal suffering case is less clear. Um, I think the reason that animal agriculture has resulted in a net decrease in total welfare uh, is kind of like a weird feature of, um, it, it's like kind of a coincidence. And I think it goes away as everyone gets wealthier. Like it so happens that currently the cheapest way to make things that have all the same properties as ground beef uh, is to raise some cows and then kill them, um, raise some cattle and then kill them. Uh, but I suspect that in fact, if it was, and it turns out the cheapest way to do that is in a way that seems pretty bad for the cattle involved. But I suspect that most people actually have sort of a preference for cattle being well off. Um, and I expect that if technology just like proceeds in normal ways, then um, animal agriculture will become wildly less widespread. And also we'll probably treat the animals a lot more nicely because it'll just be cheap too. And like consumers like kind of want that and enough people are in favor of this that we will probably pass legislation eventually. So, so there's this one argument, which is like, well, you know, things went badly last time humanity got a lot more powerful, but in a way that's going to get better as they get more powerful again. So maybe it's just totally fine. So, so, so that's like one argument for why we shouldn't be worried about the future being bad. It's like, well, this, the way that things were bad this time, was kind of like a weird one-off just like related to the fact that there was like a bunch of animals around that you can raise for meat and you can like make them kind of unhappy while you're doing that. And here's the other argument for why you might think the future might be good. Uh, it's that, you know, we were talking about how AI might really change the world a lot by reducing the price of certain types of labor. Um, one of the types, one of the ways that you think this might influence the world is it means that people will have access to better advice and better reasoning. Um, so, Sometimes I'm not sure what I think the right thing to do is about some problem. Um, and I currently can't 
you know, call up my extremely intelligent AI advisor and say like, hey, hey, do you want to like tell me about some like moral facts about the world that I'm missing? Like what's some stuff which like is bad that like I should be worried about? Like, am I, am I like, you know, am I like, and you might hope that if it was like, you know, the 1930s and you, and like we, you had this AI assistant, it might be like, look, man, you're being like really homophobic. And I think that if you like think about this, uh, it's going to turn out that like by your own values, your own beliefs, you're going to wish you were less homophobic. And I'll, you know, I, I go off and think about it for a while. I'm like, yeah, you know what? You're right, AI. I should be like less homophobic. And so you might hope that like, um, as everything gets cheaper, one of the things that gets cheaper is good moral advice. Uh, and people will want to consume good moral advice uh, and then they'll consume more of it. And then we'll have a future which is more enlightened. Um, and maybe this just like makes things, may, maybe this just means that the future uh, is more good than the past because you know, the price of enlightenment goes down. And so the quantity purchased goes up. Absolutely. It's just a lot, it's a lot easier to, uh, to understand and get that information. Um, I, I'm curious, do, do you think the moral circle or like our moral circle, is it, do you think it's fairly fixed or is it something you think we can actually make real, we can really expand? I, the, the example I give is, is people, you know, they used to, they, had, they do these surveys people used to get really concerned about their, their kids marrying a, a, a child of a different race. Yeah. And now that's just shifted over, you know, people don't worry about that as much anymore. Now they worry about their kid marrying someone of a different political affiliation at the same rate. So do you think this is something where we can like expand, like expand our moral circle? Is it like kind of fixed and maybe we can optimize on the edges, but there's only so much we can care about at any given time. Yeah. I mean, like, I think that something weird about that example is it's not totally clear that I have a hesitation about my uh, my children marrying someone of class X. It's not totally clear that this is the same as I do not care about the welfare of people in class X, though probably in both cases it's in fact correlated. Um, I think my guess is that moral circles have in fact gotten larger in the way that I care about over time. Um, I definitely don't think, yeah. I I think that probably there's like two phenomena here. One of them is like, I don't know, do you know Scott Alexander's the in-group, the out-group, and the far-group thing? Uh, I do not. I know in-group, out-group, the far-group. I I might be misquoting him, but the basic claim is, you know, there's a bunch of uh, Democrats who really hate Republicans but who uh, don't really have an opinion on a bunch of people who live in Saudi Arabia. Um, And even though the Republicans have values much closer to them than they have to the people who run Saudi Arabia. Um, And, and, and this is just because, you know, there's like a narcissism of small differences thing. You know, you, you, you get in, if you're a Democrat, you like get into more fights uh, with, with Republicans. Uh, And so my best guess is that at time, as time has gone on, people's, in-groups have gotten somewhat larger, people's out-groups have gotten somewhat larger, but people's far groups, like these groups of people who they like don't interact with that much, uh, but like are aware of the existence of and could care about the welfare of have gotten like way bigger. Um, and so I, I think I'm not that worried about like the size of the people you care about morally being fixed over time. Gotcha. That, I, I think that's, that's really well put. And also I think another example, which I think you gave earlier, which is helpful, is if people had op- you know, access to ground beef, 
that cost the same or less, but it's like, this is cultured and we didn't torture any animals. You know, most people, it seems like I have an intuition. Most people would pick that, you know, they're like, yeah, sure. You know, like if there's an easy choice, it's especially if it's cheaper, if it's cheaper, like they're picking out, you know, nine times out of 10, no worries. Um, That's super cool. Um, Another left turn, you know, how should we think about criticism? You know, should we seek out more of it in our lives, you know, in our careers? And would that be a valuable thing for people to do? I think it's hard to say and kind of depends on how much criticism you currently seek out. Um, I think that so there's this question, which is like, how do people currently decide how much criticism to receive? And why would they be making a bad decision about this criticism? Um, I think that roughly speaking, uh, because like, I don't know, uh, if you ask me the question, like how much should people, you know, how much should people, I don't know, how much should they buy chairs? If I wanted to argue that they're buying too many chairs or too few chairs, I kind of got a point to why I think they would make that mistake, you know, like what mistake I think they're making. And so similarly, when we're talking about how you should be trying to uh, solicit criticism. Uh, we, we have to talk about what mistake I th- think people might be making um, because I think there's some sense in which people on average don't make mistakes uh, or, or like, I think you got to do some work to claim they're making a mistake. Yeah. Um, I think that the core reason to claim that the people I hang out with uh, should consider soliciting more criticism than most people solicit is that uh, I think that Criticism is kind, like criticism has kind of a couple of different social roles. One of them is to point out to someone that they're making a mistake. And another one is to hurt and belittle them in front of other people uh, and to uh, like uh, demonstrate dominance over them. And so I think that by default, uh, like default human society uses criticism for these two different things. Um, And I think that if you think that you can decouple that for yourself or in, in, your, in a particular relationship, if you can make it be the case that when people provide you criticism, um, they are not you know, trying to hurt you uh, and you are not going to respond as if they were trying to hurt you. And you can just, uh, I don't know, get their actual thoughts on how things should be different. I think that this is a somewhat valuable thing to, to get done. Um, yeah. I could try to give more theoretical thoughts on how, why people might not receive enough criticism. Um, I also have takes on like how to go about getting better criticism or whatever. Yeah. How about the actionable, you know, like how would, should one go about getting, you know, better criticisms? Let's say like, you know, for this podcast, like how should I go about getting better criticism for it? So I think the key thing to do, uh, I I think my, my core thing here is probably going to be, uh, making it so that you successfully signal that you in fact do want the criticism uh, and making it really easy for people to in fact offer the criticism. So recently I decided that I wanted some criticism on some topics. uh, And so I haven't actually executed on this plan yet uh, or like finished executing on it. Um, But one thing I've done that I feel pretty optimistic about uh, when I finish it uh, is I started writing down a list of ways where I think I could be like more one way or the other way. Um, and instead of soliciting, instead of asking people if they had thoughts on how I should be different in general, um, I feel pretty excited about asking people, you know, whether they think that, you know, I want to like point out this, this 
feature of how I am that is kind of a strength and kind of a weakness. And then I want to say, do you think I should have more or less? Um, and I feel like this is probably going to be better at soliciting people's thoughts than asking them for feedback miscellaneously. And there's a couple of reasons for this, but one of them is I think that sometimes I want people's feedback on some things and not other things. Uh, for example, I think there are a lot of people where I'm interested in hearing them tell me that they think I should be slightly more careful with my programming, but I'm like less interested in hearing them say that they like think that I should dress better because I'd be more attractive or whatever. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, there are other people from whom it would be useful to hear that, um, but th th there's, a lot, there's a lot of other people where I don't really want to engage in that kind of thing with them. Um, and so if you give them a clear delineated list of topics on which you are definitely soliciting criticism, um, and then they don't even have to come up with these criticisms themselves, they just have to opine in a direction one way or another, uh, I think it's much easier for them to, to opine. And I think in some cases this uh, makes it go better. Gotcha. So it's like giving them like a concrete, you know, area. It's like, uh, you know, examine my audio quality. Like, is the audio quality good or better? Like, can I, how can I make it yeah. better? That that makes it much easier for people to like grab on something that instead of just like, how is it? You know, yeah. people are like, I don't know. God. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think another version of these is like, suppose I could work on one of the four things about my podcast. I could work on my tone. I could work on my audio quality. I could work on the quality of my guests. I could work on the miscellany, like quality of the transcripts. Yeah. Um, which one of these do you think will have the largest impact per unit effort? Uh, I think you'd get something more interesting from that in a lot of cases, gotcha. just asking for miscellaneous feedback. That, that's, that's very wise. And I, how do you go about signaling that, you know, you actually want feedback in your, in a, in a good manner? Just, do you, do you think you just tell people explicitly or people you trust or, you know, how would you think about I that? I think, I think that probably the most important ingredient here, I don't know. I think there are some basic things. I think that when someone offers you criticism, you should say thank you for the criticism. Um, and then you should default to being quiet. Um, I think, uh, but uh, aside from some basic etiquette, things like that, yeah. um, I think that the main thing is to actually uh, only ask for criticism when you are actually in a mode where it's healthy for you to receive it. Um, I think that sometimes people should in fact not be soliciting criticism. Gotcha. Um, I think that, if you are a, I mean, I think this is obvious to imagine in the case of children. I think sometimes children are in school and they're learning something. And I think that you could give them a variety of true criticisms of their essay uh, that would not cause them to, in 10 years, be writing better essays. Um, and I think this is true for adults. I think that at various points in my life, I'm doing some stuff and I just do not have enough self-esteem at that moment uh, to be into, uh, to be interested in hearing a bunch of people's like wild thoughts on what <laughs> I am maybe screwing up. Um, and I think that to be clear, uh, it is very good to normally be in a state where you in fact do have the self-esteem, uh, to solicit people's wild thoughts on what you're messing up, um, because they might have good stuff. But I think that by default, you're not in that state. I am currently not in that state. You know, I, there are various people who I know who probably could give me some good criticism, if I asked, and I am currently not feeling good enough to do this right now, just like today. Uh, yeah. And I think that, yeah, I think that sometimes I'm worried that people try, people are in a state like I am in today where they can't in fact solicit criticism well. Um, and then they say to their friends, oh no, I am very open to criticism. <laughs> uh, 
And then it just like screws everything up because they're not telling the truth um, or yeah. maybe they're not intentionally lying, but they're wrong. And I think this makes their friends uh, less likely to give them good criticism. Um, maybe the friends do give them good criticism and it's in fact bad for them. Uh, so I think that being able to like really convince someone like, no, I am actually deeply interested in your criticism right now. And I'm not worried. I'm not just saying this out of a sense that like a good rationalist should be open to criticism. I am saying this because in as much as I am making mistakes, I want to have a good list of those mistakes so that I can behave differently. So all this to say, I think like the key aspect of getting criticism better is actually being able to receive that criticism. I think people are really good at detecting this kind of stuff. Uh, and so uh, the the first part of the work is, you know, is within or whatever. I love that. I love that. I think that that's super actionable. And I, I think that's, I, I really love that. Um, got one more big question for you. So this is from our, our local ACX meetup. It, if someone wants to get involved in AI safety research, you know, how would you suggest they do that? Like what, what's a, what's a good path you think? So it really depends on who they are, um, what their, what, what their background is. Um, there are many different things that get done that get called AI safety research. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. I'll say some stuff. Um, I think that of jobs available in AI safety technical research in five years, um, I think that a bunch of them are going to be software engineering and machine learning research related to uh, various uh, uh, applied AI alignment stuff. Um, part of the point of Redwood Research is making it so that we're like pushing forward the infrastructure required to ensure that it's possible to do great work by employing people in, in those things. So yeah, I, I think that like one part is if you feel like you could plausibly be a great employee uh, doing ML research or uh, like backend web infrastructure for ML research, um, which I think, you know, if you're just like a enthusiastic and energetic and widely knowledgeable and capable and fast Python backend web programmer, uh, that, that's like a lot of the skill set there. Um, I think that developing those skills uh, is like a pretty is like a pretty reasonable way to try and seek out these jobs. Uh, and then it really helps to apply to these jobs. Uh, <laughs> it is important. Drastically increases the probability to get one of them. Um, <laughs> I think some other, I don't know, I think the other main class of activity you, you want to do if you want to work on AI alignment technical research is thinking a bunch about AI alignment. Um, there's a bunch of great resources on AI alignment these days. I think that uh, Cambridge, the Cambridge Effective Altruism Club has a really great, course called AI Safety Fundamentals, um, where they, this is a, an online course you can apply to, uh, and you, you know, it meets once a week with a facilitator. Um, and I, they discuss a bunch of fundamental questions related to AI alignment. Uh, I think that doing that kind of course uh, is like a great starting point for having thought through a bunch of the fundamental questions about like, what is the problem and what types of research ought to be done to, to, to make the problem go better. Um, and then getting deeper into it all from there, uh, yeah, is, is like the, the other part of the, yeah. So there's, I've described like two aspects of getting into AI alignment technical research. One is developing technical skills that you might be able to use in some of the applied research, which I suspect is where the majority of the jobs are. Uh, and two is uh, thinking a lot about AI alignment from a kind of fundamental perspective, which is useful both for being better at the first class of jobs and also for taking some of the other types of AI alignment technical research jobs, which involve doing that kind of fundamental thinking all the time. Gotcha, gotcha. 
that that's great. That's great. And I think that's a very, uh, that's a very it's a achievable path and it, it makes sense. It's legible. Like, you know, go here, work on these things, get better. And that's where the skate to the puck work to where the puck will be. It's very wise. I should note that Redwood Research is hiring for researchers and software engineers. So you can uh, go to our website or email me to learn more about that. Great plug. Great plug. Oh, and, and well, with that, Buck, uh, where would you like to send people? Where I like to send people? Yeah. All the, uh, it, uh, listeners of this thing, where on the internet should they go or some other question? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Where on the internet should, should they go? Well, I don't know. I like redwoodresearch.org um as a uh, as, as a website um what are my other favorite places on the internet i don't know i like the effective altruism forum um i like uh i like uh lesswrong.com has some good stuff um i thought that worth the candle was a really good piece of rationalist fiction uh i think that the ai alignment forum has some pretty good content on AI alignment. I think 80,000hours.org has a bunch of great stuff about how you should think about um, optimizing your career to do as much good as possible. Um, and it's a great source of a lot of actionable advice. Um, those are the main things that come to mind. I don't know. Got any categories I should think about? Uh, particularly, you know, your stuff. Like if people want to find your stuff, they, they really resonated with this podcast. Where Redwood Research, you mentioned one. Um, Anything else? Yeah. Uh, I think that uh, my work, my writing has mostly been published on the AI alignment forum gotcha. um, and the effective altruism forum and sometimes less wrong. Um, I am sure you can provide links to those things uh, in the podcast description or whatever. Yeah. That's, that's where it mostly goes. Sometimes it's on the, uh, sometimes it's on my website. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Buck, uh, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Special thanks to our sponsor, Bismarck Analysis, for the support. Bismarck Analysis creates the Bismarck Brief, a newsletter about intelligence-grade analysis of key industries, organizations, and live players. You can subscribe to Bismarck Brief at brief.bismarckanalysis.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives.